Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Here in the U.S., we've just celebrated the 4th of July with its parades, fireworks, and, of course, cookouts. If you're like me, the smell of a grilling burger can make you salivate from across the yard. I feel like Pavlov's dog whenever it happens, and that includes the seven or so years I was a vegetarian. I'd like to say I react this way only on those idyllic occasions, summer holidays, family barbecues, campfire weenie roasts under a star-filled sky. But the truth is that I can be walking to my car in July across a 95-degree asphalt parking lot and smell the exhaust fan from a Burger King a block away. Suddenly, I need one of those flame-broiled burgers. Every time this happens, I ask myself, why? Why is this smell such a trigger? That's exactly, more or less, the question that drives Marta Zaraska's new book, Meat Hooked, the history and science of our 2.5 million year obsession with meat. As a science writer whose work has been featured in the Washington Post, Scientific America, and Newsweek, Zaraska has come across information that's more or less familiar to us. How bad meat is for our health, for our environment, and certainly for the animals in the massive feeding operations. And yet, as Zaraska points out, we're eating as much meat as ever, and globally, we're eating even more. So why? Why are we so hooked on meat? Marta Zaraska, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And you have this new book, Meat Hooked, which is quite a vivid title, The History and Science of Our 2.5 Million Year Obsession with Meat. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into the, my gosh, I'm going to say the meat of the actual book, but um, you'll forgive that pun, I hope. And maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write it. I mean, there's a lot of, of writing out there that's on vegetarianism and on, you know, the the kind of economic and ecological consequences of meat. And now your book is has, has come into this conversation. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of the story behind how you came to write it. 
So I've been a journalist for many years now, uh, almost two decades, and I've started as a foreign affairs journalist specializing in Africa. And uh, I've traveled a lot there and I often wrote about uh, things like environmental issues and, and uh, depletion, of, depletion of natural resources and uh, water problems and things like that. And then uh, I switched a little bit to the scientific side of things and working on, you know, writing about environment, climate change, and also, you know, nutrition, how it all comes into all of this. And, uh, you know, all this together, all these years of experience brought me into, you know, thinking more and more about meat consumption and how uh, it impacts, you know, the environment and, uh, and, and specifically climate. You know, we know that um, that uh, meat consumption and producing meat and uh, livestock uh, it contributes to climate change as much as all the tra- transportation on Earth combined. So it is a huge impact, you know, also on water resources. It, it's it's really enormous impact. So uh, so I, I I became more and more interested in it. And yet, on the other hand, you know, even though we know all these things, you know, about the climate impacts and environmental and so on, and also health impacts on meat consumption, uh, at the same time, we don't really know why people like meat so much and why they crave it so much that they do not want to give it up, at least the vast majority of people, even though we have all this evidence that this is not a good thing for us at this time of human history, because it might have been good for us sometime in the past, but, you know, times have changed and it is no longer the case. So, you know, why people hold on to that meat so much and really, you know, love the taste and all the, you know, things that surround meat so much that they do not want to even consider reducing or, or completely giving up meat. So this is why I started researching it, especially like just couldn't find anything that would answer those questions that I had. And um, this research, you know, took me to paleoanthropology, you know, biology, history, chemistry, uh, marketing, you know, so many different fields of science just to look for all these uh, hooks that uh, on which meat holds us. It's true. There, there is this view sort of in the, the history of Western philosophy going all the way back to Plato that if, if you know the good, you'll do the good, right? And so if we know yeah. that meat is bad for the culture and we, we understand the arguments, then of course we're going to, to evolve, move on and, and do the right thing. And you know, I know that you live part of the time in Paris. I can't imagine that with that national cuisine, the idea of casual suggestions of giving up meat goes over all that smoothly. You know, if I lived in Paris, things would be easier, but I live in a very small French village, you know, thank stone houses and, you know, chickens and donkeys and things like that. So they're really, you know, the, the cuisine here is very much based on meat or at least, you know, fish. It's also meat, but uh, it's usually considered separate in, in cuisine. Uh, but uh, it, it is very hard, you know, this is for this reason I actually still sometimes do eat fish because, you know, if I go out, there's basically nothing else to eat. So uh, if I still want to have some kind of social uh feel socially included, I sometimes have to eat it. So maybe I'm just lazy or maybe I have huge cognitive dissonance dealing with it. But um, yes, it's, it is hard and it depends where you live as well. You know how in some places it's definitely easier, you know, the culture supports this kind of changes and in some other places it's, it's just harder. Sure. Well, so you have this fascinating question, which I, th- I think is, is one of the, the major draws of the book, which is we know all this about meat. You can see it in the headlines sort of week after week, and yet we are intensely drawn to keep eating it. There just seems to be this almost addictive quality to it, this refusal, as irrational it is, as it is. So in your answer to this question, why do we go back 2.5 million years? 
Mm -hmm. So this is when people started eating meat, uh, when at least as far as, you know, scientists know, this is where we find first proofs of human uh, humans eating or hominins, our ancestors eating meat because they left behind uh, um, bones of animals that were cut marked. So they had, you know, little cuts made by uh, inexperienced butchers who would, uh, you know, cut with another stone tool into the bone of an animal when they were scraping of meat and this is how we know that they were eating it so back then you know back then meat was good for us uh, this is something that's important to know when we were evolving you know and we're eating beginning to eat meat it was actually a very good food for our ancestors because because it was caloric it was full of protein it, was, it had lots of vitamins and mer- minerals there were not many other sources of those uh, nutrients back then, you know, they, di- they didn't have the abundance that we have nowadays. Uh, so they couldn't really be choosy. And you, if you had uh, meat, which was, again, very caloric food, it was a good idea to eat it. And this is why we evolved, our taste buds evolved to look out for the nutrients that are found in meat. And in a way, they are leading us astray nowadays. It's a very similar thing to what's happening with sugar. You know, we also evolved to look for things that are that taste sweet. So, you know, like nowadays, that means they are full of sugar, like, you know, Oreo cookies or or, uh, or some chocolate. But uh, in the past, it was a good idea to eat those things that were very sweet because it, it guaranteed, you know, it helped us with survival. And the same thing with meat, you know, so we might have evolved to look for some nutrients or some tastes uh, in foods, which nowadays may not be the best Anymore. So I want to use your expertise and run some of the arguments by by you that we hear just kind of floating around in the media, you know, sometimes more and less vigorously depended, defended. So so if I said to you something like, well, well, based on that, humans are are supposed to eat meat, right? We're evolved to eat meat. Shouldn't we be doing that? What, what's the <laughs> counter argument to that? <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, if your priority is to live until you're about thirty, and all the only. <laughs> And only goal in your life is to have children, probably 20 of them, and then die. Then, of course, go ahead, you know. But but the, that's the whole thing, you know, that evolution is not about living happily, you know, until you, a retirement in your 80s and uh, going to Bahamas to have a timeshare there, you know. This is not what evolution is about. Evolution is about uh, reproduction. So, basically, you know, passing on your genes and surviving long enough so you can pass on those genes. Of course, you know, so... For our, our ancestors, most of them never lived long enough to suffer the negative consequences of meat eating. So as we know from uh, studies nowadays, you know, meat eating has been connected in, in several studies, you know, to cancer, to heart disease, to diabetes and so on. So these are things that, that you know, uh, happen to us when we get older, not in your 20s or, you know, even early 30s, usually when you're 40 something or 50, 60 and so on. So, uh, so this is why it's very different nowadays. And even though, yes, we have evolved, meat even helped us evolve. You know, some scientists say it made us human. But just like with sugar, you know, things that were not good, were good for us in the past, not necessarily are now for, for what we want from life now. And this is a long, happy life without cancer and uh, until you're probably at least 80 or 90. I, I'm going to certainly sign on for the cancer-free choice. So a very similar argument that you'll hear um, floating around is, well, well, we have these, these pointy canine teeth. Right. That that are supposed to be meat friendly. And so, you know, my own mouth tells me I should be eating that steak. 
So this argument is completely misplaced for for one, you know, canine teeth are teeth that basically all mammals have them. So this is nothing special. And actually, human canine teeth are very small and stubbly com- compared to canine teeth of other species. And these are not m- m- teeth for eating meat at all. Uh, the, the canine teeth, for example, some herbivores have huge canine teeth, for example, like gorillas. Or there are some species of deer uh, in Asia that have enormous canine teeth and these teeth are for fighting so they are used for fighting for females for example among males not for eating meat uh, the real teeth that are for eating meat are cal- called carnassials and these are teeth that you can find uh, at the back of a jaw of a cat or a dog uh, and these this will look weird to you and unusual because we don't have them so we do not have those real teeth meat eating teeth the carnassials and as i said canines are, are not for eating meat that's great. I love the idea of, of carnassials. What a beautiful word. And, and there's this, I'm going to take us on a quick aside because there's this moment where you talk about the language of meat and the language of hunger. And some cultures actually have a different word for being hungry for meat than for being oh, hungry. Yes, that's true. It's actually quite, maybe not common, but it does exist in many, many different cultures, mostly among uh, hunter-gatherers, uh, so in tribes in Africa or places like Papua New Guinea, for example. And they do differentiate between those two types of hunger, so general hunger uh, or hunger for plant food and hunger for meat. And uh, there is some reason in, in this because um, humans, just like other animals, for example, uh, cockroaches or cats, uh, have... Um, have a hunger for protein. So if we don't have certain amount percentage of protein in our diet, it's about 15%, then these cravings for protein turn on. And before, you know, uh, listeners start thinking, oh, I have this protein cravings, most likely, you know, it doesn't really happen to Westerners because we eat much more protein than we need. So uh, it's very unlikely that uh, you will start feeling those real protein uh, pangs in your everyday life. But for people who live in exactly, you know, hunters, gatherers in places like Africa, uh, it can happen because in some places the diets are um, very poor in protein. So people who subsist mostly on some type of tubers or, for example, plantains uh, or bananas, they may have uh, deficient protein. And, And generally, if they suffer hunger, so then they can experience a protein hunger and then they can misinterpret it as a hunger for meat because they do not have many other protein sources, uh, like, for example, all the lentils, beans uh, that we have, and uh, generally, you know, peanut butter. Uh, so so it is possible, but this is not really something, once again, that concerns Westerners. So, so as, a, as a Westerner, when I walk by someone grilling out hamburgers, the big American thing, right, or, or meat on a spit or something like that, and I, I get that smell and I start salivating and I can think of nothing more than eating meat, what am I experiencing if not meat hunger? Uh, so this is not exactly the meat hunger in a way that you are craving protein because you don't have enough, most likely, unless you've been really eating for the last two days nothing but, you know, <laughs> marshmallows or sugar by the spoonful. Uh, so... Uh, or bananas. Uh, so most likely, uh, what you are feeling is um, craving that is in your, you know, taste buds uh, that 
you, we evolved to look for the special nutrients found in meat. And the smell is something called, uh, coming from something called the Maillard reaction. And um, <clears throat> this is a reaction that happens when you uh, grill or roast certain foods. So this is the same what makes, uh, for example, baked cookies smell delicious or toasted bread uh, or exactly uh, roast, toasted, roast, roasted, sorry, meat or grilled or fried bacon. So this is this browning that happens on the outside. And we evolved to look for it because this smells signify that food has been cooked. And uh, of course, grilled meat is much safer to eat than raw meat because, you know, it doesn't have all the parasites and bacteria. So we evolved to look for the scents because they signified cooked and thus safer to eat meat. And uh, this is why we find it delicious. That's fascinating. And before we leave sort of the story of evolution, which we might come back to altogether, there has been an actual genetic adaptation that you talk about in the book. Um, we have something, or some of us, to have something that helps us deal with rotten meat. Uh, yes, that's true. So um, some scientists argue that we have something called, we evolved something called meat adaptive genes. And uh, I will not go too much into details here, but basically first we evolved first set of uh, this meat adaptive genes and uh, they helped us uh, digest rotten meat that was full of bacteria and parasites. And we were, people who had this mutation were much less likely to fall sick because of eating uh, such meat. But the side of of it was the same genes uh, caused uh, more heart problems from eating meat. So you were more likely to survive short term because you wouldn't get the uh, food poisoning. But if you managed to live long enough, uh, you were more likely to get a heart attack and cardiovascular troubles because of eating meat. Later on, we got a second set of meat adaptive genes that kind of helped overcome a little bit of those cardiovascular problems. But still nowadays, quite a lot of us are still left with those this first set of meat adaptive genes, meaning that, you know, you may be less, maybe less likely to fall sick if you ate some rotten meat, but uh, you are also much more likely to uh, have cardiovascular uh, disease if you eat a lot of meat. And uh, it's possible to test yourself, actually. Uh, and um, uh, there are labs that do this kind of test. These are also, these tests are also done to check how likely somebody is uh, to have uh, cardiovascular problems. That would be an interesting idea. Were you given the option, would you want to know this? <laughs> I guess you would want to know this if you wanted to eat the chicken that had been sitting out on the counter overnight or something like that. Uh, you, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah. Sorry, I, I mean, I don't eat meat really anymore. I, my, maybe, you know, two slices of pepperoni uh, a, a year. So I guess that's that's not much of a risk. But uh, yeah, everybody can do that. And if somebody wants to test themselves, that, that's, that's doable. So you are, um, you know, you, you've given us your own meat, uh, meat preferences, which is very little, a little bit of fish, a little bit of pepperoni. So you've obviously made this choice. Uh, one of the things that's nice about the book is it doesn't come off as an argument that begins just simply in favor of vegetarianism or, or veganism or something like that. But you do give us a lot of the history of those movements um, all the way back to Pythagoras. So I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that side of our meat story. 
Yeah, so, you know, vegetarianism has been in human history for quite some time. Uh, so the first traces that we've managed to find uh, are in ancient Egypt, actually, about 5,000 years ago, when uh, when the priests uh, of ancient Egypt were vegetarian, most likely. So so there are some already, you know, uh, signs that there was some vegetarianism back then. Uh, voluntary, of course, because, you know, lots of humans were uh, vegetarian over the over our history, but most of them were not vegetarian by choice, uh, rather by the fact that they had nothing else to eat. But... Um um, but yes, Pythagoras was also a vegetarian, and uh, uh, just like his contemporaries uh, Buddha and Mahavira, that was the founder of Jainism. Uh, so this kind of vegetarianism was kept appearing over our history, and but it usually had nothing to do with animals and their welfare, oh, and obviously nothing to do with environment. Uh, but it had everything to do with human soul. So they used to the philosopher back then used to believe that uh, killing animals is bad for your soul. So uh, if you wanted to keep it pure, then you should abstain abstain from meat. And then uh, there was much more uh, of a vegetarian uh, you know, awakening in 19th century, and back then it was already connected to animal welfare. But also what happens in 19th century, that even though there were many you know, philosophers and promoters of vegetarianism, such as, for example, John Harvey Kellogg or Sylvester Graham of the Graham uh, crackers and Graham bread, they were considered, they, they didn't have a best opinion because they were all, they connected, you know, there was a whole package to vegetarianism. They were also, they where they said no to alcohol, uh, no to spices, no to sex. And no, really, you know, all the bodily pleasures were basically forbidden. So, and this is why it didn't really go well with majority of society because, you know, if you're trying to sell this package of basically no fun, uh, then people, m- most people didn't want to subscribe to that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, a wholesale rejection of any kind of culinary pleasure could be difficult. <laughs> You you also give us a picture of of vegetarianism in the present, and uh, it's kind of surprising to to look at the numbers that your book shows us. Can you can you tell us a little bit about those surveys and about what you make of them? Uh, so generally, you know the the numbers of vegetarians uh, haven't changed that much over the last decades and uh, only in very few places, maybe there is a little bit more like United uh, Kingdom for example. But what's also surprising is that uh, several surveys have shown that uh, about 60% of vegetarians still continue to eat meat from time to time so uh, I mean these are self-proclaimed vegetarians, so people who call themselves vegetarians. So, uh, so obviously the number of people who never ever eat meat are quite low uh, and uh, vegans, uh, so people who don't eat any eggs or or, uh, or cheese or butter and so on, are even lower than that. So obviously it's, you know, for, for people, it, giving up meat and animal products is something that's very difficult. So, so this is one of the challenges of being meat hooked? Uh, yes, that's, that's because, you know, there are so many, so many different ways that meat, meat lures are, you know, from, from genetics to, you know, the marketing of the meat industry to our history, which, you know, with all the, uh, you know, weird vegetarian leaders and their, you know, unpopular ideas, there, you know, the symbolism that meat carries, you know, there are plenty of reasons uh, why meat is difficult to let go of. And uh, and what one of the things you you demonstrate in the book is this this leads us to an unusual paradox for most of us, which you call the meat paradox. Yes, that you know, uh, actually, that's not me who called it like that. Oh, actually, yeah. there, there, 
scientists uh, who came up with this uh, this term, and basically it means that uh, this is what happens when uh, people uh, hold two beliefs at the same time. One of them is I love animals, and the other one is I love meat. And uh, they basically, you know, it's impossible uh, to have them uh, in your mind at the same time and don't experience something called cognitive dissonance. Uh, it's a very unpleasant feeling of when you believe in things that you just don't go together. Uh, it's the same as, you know, uh, I love my, my giant, uh, you know, SUV and uh, I care about climate change. So uh, so these are things that go, don't go together and we have plenty of mechanisms which I describe in my book uh, that help us overcome uh, this cognitive dissonance uh, and uh, you know we go to very to very uh, interesting uh, you know we go into very interesting thought processes to, to deal with this uh, cognitive dissonance. The, the twists and turns are amazing. And um, I was a vegetarian for, for maybe seven or eight years. And, you know, just the fact that fact would come up would send some people into to rages. And now when I'll have some meat, there may be vegetarians that, that seem equally kind of upset and ferocious. So I, I think it's extremely embroiled. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are studies showing that, for example, in some cases, it may be Vegans and vegetarians will be fighting more than meditators and uh, vegetarians, precisely because of all the weird ways in our in which our brains work, and in which we deal with this cognitive dissonance. Well, one of the things that's very impressive about the book is that you travel the world to figure out this uh, this obsession that we have with meat, which is not just a Western European obsession, but it's becoming a a much more global obsession. Could you tell us a little bit about the international story of meat? Yeah, so, you know, definitely, uh, especially what's happening in Asia, it's something that, uh, that definitely worries me. Uh, and so not only me, but and many other uh, scientists uh, and journalists as well. So, um, Asia is basically, you know, getting hooked on me in, uh, enormous, with enormous speed. And, uh, in some places, like, for example, in the cities of India or in Laos, uh, the meat consumption, poultry consumption is expected to go up over 1000% by 2030. So it's huge, you know, the, the appetites are growing exponentially. And one of the reasons for that is that um, they they are rejecting their traditional cultures and the ways of eating because they see them as backwards. For example, that's what's happening in India. And uh, young, you know, upper class uh, people, they're looking up to the West and uh, to the way we are eating. And uh, they want to be more like the, the West, you know, with everything that goes with it, including uh, our diet and meat-eating. Uh, so, for example, in some, uh, you know, Western corporations, uh, in their offices in Bangalore, the cafeterias will be serving a lot of meat, and when people go out, they'll go for steaks. And this is, you know, this is fashionable, and that's, um, and, and that's why this is what people want. So we've got the situation where the West is it's exporting its idea of, of meat as a kind of status symbol. We, we essentially, I think the portrait we're getting from your book and then from the research on sugar and fat is that we can't quite trust our gut, right? When we have this impulse to want to eat meat, when we have this impulse to want to eat sugar, we're, mm-hmm. we're feeling evolutionary impulses, but they're not ones that we need to give into. In fact, our, our health will deteriorate as a result of that. So, so what is the answer? How do we get unhooked? And I'm going to ask you that on the, the cultural level, but also on the personal level. I think there are two sorts of fascinating answers. 
so there are plenty of different ways which I which I write about in in my book. But uh, but uh, you know the first step for me is exactly understanding uh, all these ways in which we are hooked on meat. Because I you know once you understand why do you crave meat and why is it so important to you and why you know it has such a special place in our culture and society. You know why, for example, going for a steak means uh, you know power and wealth and so on. Uh, you know then then. You can understand and it can be easier, you know, when, for example, as a man, uh, you see advertisements uh, telling you that uh, meat is the food for real men, real guys, uh, you know, but you understand where it comes from in history, uh, then it doesn't have the same power over you, you're an, you are anymore. You, you can say, oh, there it goes again, you know, and the same, the same with protein myths, for example, which are also traced back to the 19th century Germany. You know, if you, if you, if you understand where all these things come from, uh, you can, uh, you, they don't, uh, they don't they don't have power over you anymore and um and also of course there are many tricks you can you can um, employ uh, to help yourself so if you know uh what makes meat so uh, so spe- specific so tasty what's so uh you know tempting in meat then you can replace those flavors with plant foods for example you know if you are craving meat it can mean you are craving the sense of the Maillard reaction uh so you can you know you can have some toasted bread or you can be craving something fatty so that's that could be avocados for example or you can be craving the umami taste which is also very abundant in meat and uh, but you can also find umami taste for example in soy sauce or mushrooms and uh, or cheese uh, especially in parmesan so you know there are, there are ways to replace those flavors but you just have to know what to look out for and uh, let, let's just bring back one of those arguments that maybe are in the mind of some of our listeners that, that you also um, I'm sure have a a view on you know the the whole thing of well some of our most celebrated holidays they revolve around some sort of meat eating right there's there's a turkey uh, or something like that and you know there's a grill out um, how are, how are we gonna you're asking us to give up some of our most treasured moments with our families and our friends I, I, I'll try to be as modeling as I can right yeah what do we do there so there are a few things first of all you know I don't believe necessarily that uh, you know that you should just go you know to use the turkey example cold <laughs> turkey here and uh, and just give up meat overnight and never ever ever have it again in your whole life uh, because this is something that's very scary and it turns off many people from uh, from trying to reduce their meat consumption I'm, I'm trying to suggest more uh, that you try reducing meat consumption which which means, you know, you still can have the Thanksgiving turkey. You know, you may not eat meat on everyday basis, but, you know, have the, the turkey on Thanksgiving or Christmas. That's one approach, right? So, you know, even starting with Meatless Mondays is already much better than than uh, than what we are doing right now. So it doesn't have to be, you know, that you will never have meat again, ever, ever. Uh, and the second thing is also that um, from the way humans' brain work and from our psychology, we know that it's very difficult for us to let go of habits and eating habits especially so uh for example uh in our we have something called eating scripts so if you go to a baseball game you think hot dogs when you go for to a grill party you think burgers so the same so 
trying to replace those things with uh, something completely different. So instead of a hot dog trying to eat, I don't know, a salad, and instead of a burger trying to have some, I don't know, um, quinoa wrap, this doesn't really work, work well. So what's much better and much easier to do is to replace them with something extremely similar. So a vegetarian burger or a vegetarian hot dog. But do not go, you know, make it easier for ourselves for ourselves this way, just by replacing by some, with something that's almost the same. And what is your assessment of of kind of the the science of meat substitution? And uh, you know, there there are many companies and and scientists working on giving us something that's plant based that tastes like meat, so that we can swap out the burger, we can swap out the hot dog. Um, is is there a promising future in that? There is a huge promising future in it, and I'm, I'm, I have a lot of hope that it will work. Precisely because we have these habits that are, you know, that it's not so easy to exactly go from a burger to to a, a kale salad. Uh, so I really hope that these things will uh, will gain more and more market, and uh, they are really becoming good. Uh, the only problem is that there are also some really bad products on the market, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I will no, not name any brands here, but there are. And uh, the problem is that when uh, meat eaters try such products and they have a very bad experience, they usually do not give a second chance to mock meat or plant-based meat. Uh, but this is totally unfair. You know, this is the equivalent of if you went, went out uh, for a steak and had a horrible, dry, you know, cardboard-like steak, and you said, oh, steaks are horrible, I will never eat it again. Uh, you know, but if people usually just say, you know, this steak was horrible, I'll go somewhere else. And uh, we should have the same approach to plant-based meat. You know, if you eat something bad, you know, just try a different brand because some of them are amazing and some of them are horrible. So just, uh, you know, just keep an open mind. It sounds like we need an exposure kit. You know, here, if you're thinking about this, here is here's the box that you can order that will have the various things that you'll, you'll be sure to have a good first experience. And uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. that can be it for every edition of Meat Hook that you buy. You know, you could yeah. <laughs> we'll come to your That'll place. Nice. Um, well, OK, so so tell us about the more systemic issue, though, that, you know, even in the, the face of a personal decision to, to do meatless Mondays or to try to swap out the burger. You know, we have, as you report, one hundred eighty six billion dollars worth of annual sales of meat in the U.S. We've got a huge marketing and lobbying engine that uh, that makes meat palatable and desirable. Um, so. What are we going to do systemically? Uh, so that's a very good question. I just came actually back from Brussels when I was at the European Development Days by European Commission, where where I was leading a session on uh, how to uh, reduce meat consumption in in European Union. And basically, that is what we're talking about. You know, uh, how what kind of what can be done on the levels of governments to encourage uh, reduced meat consumption. And uh, so, among the most uh, important ideas are is definitely you know first of all for governments. To to realize that this is very important and is something we have to do for for the sake of our planet and environment. And uh, so, uh, for example, meat tax uh, would work very well. Uh, Denmark is working right now on something like that. So this is a tax similar to tax on alcohol, on alcohol or on cigarettes. Uh, then, of course, you know, encouraging 
plant-based plant-based meals uh, in in school cafeterias, for example, to make them available. You know, there there are plenty of things like that that can be done. Of course, more transparency in lobbying, uh, so we know what's going on behind those closed doors. There, uh, or also, you know, uh, more transparency in uh, what and in, in uh, research, because for example, many research studies are sponsored by the meat industry. So, uh, actually, most of the studies uh, that you read about that tell you that meat eating is fine, uh, if you scroll down to acknowledgements, there is a huge chance uh, that you will see that uh, these were sponsored by the meat industry. So, you know, there is a big question whether this is something that we should that should be done at all. You know, that whether journal, scientific journals should allow uh, such sponsoring of studies. Uh, uh, but definitely, it would be good if uh, journalists uh, writing about that, you know, made it clear that this particular study was sponsored, let's say, by the National Pork Board uh, for 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 readers to be able to judge for themselves whether to trust it or not. That that's fascinating. I, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier um, with the hope that we could go a little bit more deeply into it, which is that you made the observation at the opening of the interview that meat consumption does more damage to the environment than all of the fossil fuels together. And uh, sorry, sir- just to correct you, uh, not not the, not all the fossil fuels. That's incorrect. So uh, oh, okay. It does it does the same damage uh, to uh, climate change. So the same is responsible for as much uh, greenhouse gas emission emissions as all the transportation combined. So cars, okay. planes, trucks, ships, and so on. All of them combined, it's equal to uh, to livestock production. Okay. Can you tell us a, a little bit about what's behind that? Because it, it seems that in in the American media, at least, the the conversation about ecology and preservation is is almost entirely centered around energy production. Uh, you know, meat does come up, but it's not a kind of focus like I think your book shows us it should be. Uh, you know, the U.S. is not alone. You know, when uh, we had uh, in Paris last year, we had the uh, climate talks here and uh, Im- imagine that even there, uh, it was extremely difficult to get any vegetarian meals during the, the climate talks. <laughs> uh, basically, everything that was served was meat, which is ridiculous, you know, at the climate talks. Uh, the same, you know, the, the event I just came back from Brussels, again, meat, meat and more meat. Uh, so generally, you know, uh, what I've heard also from politicians is that they are basically afraid of talking about need because it's such a touchy, sensitive t- subject. They are afraid of losing votes. You know, it's much uh, less controversial to talk about other topics like, you know, uh, you know, electric cars. Uh, everybody says, yes, it's a great idea, but uh, tell people to reduce meat consumption and suddenly they become um, very negative about the whole idea. So this is why it's not really in public discourse much, even though it should. That's fascinating. And, and what is it that, that creates the huge tax um, on the environment through meat production? I mean, how, where is that coming from? Oh, so the most important thing is that basically animals are not good converters of food into energy or to into meat. Uh, you know, we could say they are wasting it on living in a way, you know, but to, for example, to grow uh, one kilogram or one pound of beef, you need 13 pounds of grain. Uh, so, you know, it's much more efficient if we eat the plant foods directly. Uh, and also, you know, meat production uh, requires, you know, a huge, uh, huge amounts of water, for example, huge amounts of land. Uh, also, there is the methane from, from the animals themselves, especially from cows. So there are lots of uh, many different ways in, in which 
uh, livestock production contributes to climate change. You know, there are the, all the pesticides and uh, and uh, uh, pumped into the the grains, the soy, and the corn that are grown for for the for the animals. The many, mo- many of them are genetically modified. So so there is there is you know the whole huge package of problems there. Yeah, it does sound like a tangle. Uh, could we talk a little bit about your process for, for writing the book, for reporting? Because one of the, the nice things is that you take us to meet all these various figures and to, to see all these sites um, that have to do with with our meat consumption, with our, our history with meat. Um, I'm wondering if you could you could tell readers a little bit about what it took for you to write this book. I mean, uh, I think it's really a, a tour de force. It's not you just going through some scientific papers, nor is it you just going and, you know, looking at a few industrial farms, nor is it you just talking to one or two experts. The the kind of breadth here uh, is impressive. And I want readers to ha- or our listeners to have a sense of what's behind the creation of the book. Uh, I definitely, I definitely had a lot of fun writing, and you know, the, the, as you've mentioned, the process took me to very uh, unusual uh, places. You know, from uh, a lab in the Netherlands when uh, they are growing the cultured meat, so the lab-grown meat. I saw it with my own eyes how it's growing. Uh, to uh, you know, to voodoo temples of Western Africa, and uh, to steakhouses of India, and uh, uh, <clears throat> to Jordan, and uh, many other places. You know, and uh, this was really fascinating, and I. I met so many interesting people and scientists and uh, uh, meat producers as well. You know, I've been to a, to, to you know a Kobe beef farm in the United Kingdom. You know, there, so it was it was really fascinating for me as well. And I I had to admit that you know when I finished, I was a little bit disappointed that I won't be able to do any more of the uh, you know investigative journalism and traveling that it involved. Well, now that you have gone through two point five million years of meat. What's next for you in terms of your homework? I mean, right now I'm I'm uh, back mostly to doing my journalism work. So I work uh, mostly uh, right now for the Washington Post, Scientific American, and Discovery Magazine. So I'm writing um, about climate change and also uh, still about meat eating. Uh, I just had an article in, in the last Scientific American about the cognitive dissonance around meat eating. So I'm basically working, you know, more and more on those topics uh, and uh, going deeper into some areas. You know, my book, I was very limited in space. I, I, I wish I could have written, you know, four of them, but uh, but now I can uh, I can expand on on my work in articles. So, as you shared with us, this book began with the question, which is why is it that we are so hooked on meat? Why is it that we, despite knowing better, continue to consume meat in devastating amounts? Um, now that you've searched through all of these answers. And written the book. I wonder what questions still linger for you. Uh, so, first, you know, the most important question that lingers for me here is, you know, how is it going to all end? And uh, I'm really hoping that humanity will be able to uh, reduce our meat consumption significantly and soon. Uh, I you know I don't, although of course I would love it if uh, we all went vegetarian, including myself, I guess, here uh, overnight, and it was so easy, and uh, because it would be you know great for our uh, climate change you know problems. It would really it wouldn't solve the whole climate change problem, but it would add us give us a lot more time uh, to work on uh, inventing 
using other energy sources. Uh, but uh, the question here is, you know, how will, will it all happen? You know, will we be able to uh, overcome our meat cravings? You know, what will happen in Asia? Um, because what's going on with China and India is really worrisome, you know, with the amount of people there who are eating more and more meat. Uh, so so this is the, the leading question for me. Yeah. And if, if you could write the follow-up book, where would you want to go next? What location would you want to check out? Uh, that's a difficult question. I, I, <laughs> I really haven't thought about that. Um, I think I would wait maybe a few more years and then decide where to go. Yeah, I, I think that that's... Uh... For me, you know, one of the things you described about wanting to write a book that was four times the length, um, you know, people who I, I don't think are writers often think, oh, my goodness, how did you manage to fill 200 or 300 pages? And, of course, when you write a book like this, you think, how did I get all of my material down to this little amount? Because you end up exactly. having so much rich material. Um, so I was just curious as to, to where those those next pages might have led you. Um Well, Marta, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for inviting me. And the best of luck with your future work. Thank you. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Marta Zaraska, author of Meat Hooked, the history and science of our 2.5 million year obsession with meat, here on the New Books Network. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S., Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit.